Welcome to a special edition of the Unknown Soldiers podcast. Today's story spans thousands of years worldwide. Every military in history has been bound by its rules. It is the challenge that makes or breaks an army. It is the instrument of victory for those who can navigate it and the downfall of those who neglect it. Let's look at military supply, the iron hand of logistics, from ancient Greece to World War II. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and I know you might be a bit surprised to be hearing from me so soon, but I am here. This is a special edition episode, episode 33, The Iron Hand of Logistics. Today's episode is a much more in-depth version of a subject I've tackled before. The short-round logistics of the engine war used that series as a case study to show the importance of military logistics. Well, today, I am giving the topic a much fuller treatment. This is a set of case studies showing how logistics has changed and hasn't changed over time and how important it is. I hope you guys liked word problems in high school because we're about to get a bunch today. Uh, Today's episode will be a little different from the usual fare. There's not going to be a narrative per se, not much of a storyline. Very little shooty-shooty and stabby-stabby, because this is focusing on all the important personnel and infrastructure and organization that makes the shooty-shooty and stabby-stabby happen. Some of this will be repeat information from the previous short round, but most of it will not. Hopefully this is as revealing for you to hear as it was for me to research it. As always, this is not just history, but military history. Dark and bloody stuff going on. Podcast is PG-13, language is clean, content is not. All my sources will be on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com, so if you want them, that's where you can find them. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are all me. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. Lots of people have written about war, but very few people have had more insight into human conflict than the famous Prussian philosopher Karl von Clausewitz. Now, if you ever do read Clausewitz's On War, good luck. It is dense and complex in the way that only German philosophers can really be. You have to read each sentence two or three times to really get it sometimes. A James Patterson novel, this is not. But Clausewitz still gets some zingers in there, some good one-liners. One of my favorite lines is as follows. Everything is very simple in war, but the simplest thing is difficult. That's that's a that's a there's a lot in there. Everything's simple, but it's really hard. And very few things are more difficult than the seemingly basic but make or break task of supply. When I refer to military logistics, I am referring to the art and science of moving, supplying, supporting, and maintaining a military force. All the stuff that's not combat. And if you haven't gathered this from other episodes, including the short round logistics of the Imjin War I did way back in March. I consider it to be one of the most important, but least popularly understood, components of warfare. Not least understood by the people who do it, mind you. If you look at, read between the lines enough in history, or if you ask most military officers today, it's pretty clear that logistics take up not just part of, but almost 
the majority of a military commander's day-to-day duties. No, least understood in pop culture and amateur history. Especially those who, bless their hearts, learned history from movies or video games or History Channel documentaries. Because those just won't tell you a lot of the nitty-gritty of how a military operates on the ground in real life. One of the biggest challenges for any armed force is just getting your forces to the battlefield and sustaining them there. Logistics. Ask any army drill sergeant. It's hard enough to get a company of basic trainees to the range without something going wrong. It seems simple, but in war, the simplest thing is difficult. And the larger and more complicated your military, the harder logistics become. Because in the end, when I talk about logistics, I'm talking about reality, limits, the constraints, the bottlenecks, the limitations that every army must overcome. And I refer to that system of constraints, that make-or-break set of rules and limitations, as the iron hand of logistics, the limits, the constraints, the iron hand that will grip you around your neck if you fail to heed all the dangers. So today's episode is going to be in four parts. Each of them will deal with a pretty famous or well-known military campaign. I'm not discussing any of these conflicts in too much detail. I chose familiar conflicts, well-known conflicts, because I want to leave aside why the war started, politics, tactics, oh, look at these tanks, and just focus on an unfamiliar aspect of familiar wars, how logistics impose constraints and limits on the fighting forces, how leaders made decisions based on these limits, and how they tried to navigate the iron hand of logistics. Some will rise to the challenge, and some will not. First, we will take a trip back to the ancient world and examine pre-modern logistics with god-king Xerxes of the Persian Empire on his way into Greece. Then we will fast forward and discuss industrial logistics with General Sherman and the Union Army. We will follow Hitler and the German Blitzkrieg into motorized logistics, And finally, we'll see men like George Marshall and Dwight D. Eisenhower lay the foundations of global and maritime logistics. And at the end, I'll tell you why it matters. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And there will be breaks. (laughs) These are your chance to pause, make a second pot of coffee, take a nap on the couch, do the thing you need to do. So, load those bags of grain on the wagon, feed more wood into the steam engine, or top the trucks off with gas for another run to the front lines. Soldiers gotta eat, guns need ammo, tanks need gas. Without any of that stuff, we can't go on campaign. Our story begins with one of history's most famous military campaigns, the Persian invasion of Greece in 480 BC. Now this war is famous for lots of reasons, the Spartans, 300, Thermopylae, Greek warships, etc. But one of the most incredible feats of this conflict, one of the things that make it so fascinating to me, was the fact that a Persian army made it to Greece at all. The fact that any ancient empire could project an army tens of thousands strong across hundreds of miles of difficult terrain and large bodies of water, well, that might be an even more incredible achievement than the Greek defeat of the Persians. And that is a question of logistics. 
First, let's set the scene. For those who don't know, Xerxes ruled the greatest realm the world had ever seen up to that point. The Achaemenid Persian Empire was one of the great human achievements, a massive organism run by professional bureaucracy centering on the great king himself, and it wielded a mighty military establishment. Only a few resisted the Persian Empire, chief among them the Greek city-states of Athens and Sparta. In 490 BC, Xerxes' father Darius had sent an army to punish Athens, but this army had been defeated in the Battle of Marathon. Darius was planning a new, much larger expedition before he died in 486 BC, leaving the task to his son, Xerxes. So Xerxes is preparing a great invasion, an expedition to punish Athens and Sparta for their defiance. So let's look at this invasion. Let's get into the sandals of God King Xerxes and see exactly what he would have to do in order to get his army to Greece. What were the logistics of Xerxes' invasion? Well, first, let's look at the limitations. Logistics is a story of limitations. It is the art of the possible. We're thinking less about what we should do than what we can do. And I call these limitations the iron hand of logistics. So what are the obstacles, the bottlenecks, the limits that Xerxes would have to tackle to get his army to Greece? What did the iron hand of logistics consist of for him? Well, I have identified four broad factors that every army has to grapple with to one degree or another. Navy, Air Force, whoever. Military force. Some of these factors have changed and transformed over time. Some of them have not. Let's call them the fingers of the iron hand of logistics. The fingers. Four fingers. They are distance, conditions, time, and capacity. DCTC. Distance, conditions, time, capacity. I'm going to be using those words a lot through the rest of this episode. First, distance. Distance is an unalterable factor. Whether you are moving 10 men or a million men, by land or by sea or by air, distance is one factor you cannot change. And distance has imposed constraints on logistics since the dawn of time. Not only does it make the delivery of supplies much more difficult, but it degrades the men and animals and vehicles carrying those supplies forward. And those men and animals and vehicles consume supplies in turn. The more, they, the more distance they have to travel, the more they consume on the way there. Xerxes planned to launch his invasion from his regional power center of Sardis in modern-day western Turkey. From Sardis to Athens over land is... You know what? I can Google Maps this. Okay, so that is a distance of around 1,659 kilometers or 1,030 miles. Oof. There's Xerxes' first big challenge. Distance. One big finger of the iron hand of logistics. A, dis a factor that does not get much easier over time, by the way, as we'll find out. This is a rule I spelled out in the Logistics of the Engine War episode. With pre-modern technology, it was impossible to supply a large army over a long distance by land. An army could not be feasibly supplied from a base farther than around 100 to 120 miles away, and it couldn't carry its own food farther than around 140 to 170 miles. I broke all that math down back in that short round. I'm not going to go into all the math again, but suffice it to say, after a certain point, Adding more animals literally doesn't help. They're eating the extra food they were made to carry. And Xerxes is trying to go at least a thousand miles. His army could not carry all that food, and they could not be supplied over land from their base. He would have to find another way. And distance can be exacerbated by conditions. 
your operational environment. Is it a desert or a jungle or mountains? Is the weather good, bad, or atrocious? For Xerxes, his army would have to move across dry, arid regions in northwestern Turkey before they even entered Europe. The water sources were few and far between in this area, and they would be swamped if his entire army hit them at once, so he had to stagger his march across this area, like troops had to leave in chalks. One troop, one division leaves one day, another division leaves another day. The Greek historian Herodotus made it clear that water was a major problem for Xerxes' army. For what nation did Xerxes not lead out of Asia against Greece, and what water was not exhausted, being drunk by his host, except only the great rivers? The Persian army would collapse before it ever got to Greece if Xerxes failed to account for the conditions. And one of the factors affecting those conditions is time. In most parts of the world, there is a campaign season, and this is usually spring, summer, early autumn. This is when the roads are solid, the weather is good, the harvest is coming in. But this also gives your army a narrow window of time before the weather closes on you like a trap. This is where army movement speeds come into play. A large army like the Persian army, transporting hordes of supplies and siege engines and tents and baggage, even without the food, could only go so fast. The maximum speed of the oxen pulling the big heavy carts transporting their supplies. This was around 10 miles a day. And with the 1,030 miles from Sardis to Athens, that's 103 days of travel one way for Xerxes' enormous army to get to Greece. So for Xerxes, he would be working against the clock. Because after a certain point, the late autumn stormy season would finish his campaign, whether he was finished or not. Conditions would change, so Xerxes had to win his campaign decisively before the autumn storms came. Time. Finally, there is capacity. Capacity. This is how many supplies your army can transport and sustain. And capacity has changed throughout history. Because human beings cannot change distance, they cannot change the seasons, and dang Jackie, they can't control the weather, they can improve their capacity via organization, materials, or technology. The story of the evolution of military logistics is a story of growing capacity. But Xerxes was working in the classical era, and even with the mightiest empire in the world, pre-modern logistics placed a firm cap on his capacity. When I say pre-modern, I mean pre-industrial because the material basis of an army's logistics did not fundamentally change between the days of Xerxes and the days of George Washington. From the dawn of warfare up to the invention of a feasible steam engine, everything an army needed was transported by muscle power on land, with the occasional supplement of wind power by sea. Every ounce of bread, every tent, every arrow, every cannonball or catapult had to be transported by muscle power or by sailing ship. So Xerxes' capacity had limits. Past a certain point, adding more pack animals and baggage handlers wouldn't even help. They would, they would just be more mouths to feed. The capacity would eventually start consuming itself. Every pack animal pulling food also had to eat, and you eventually run out of animals to pull the food for the animals pulling the food, etc. So it stacks. It can get out of control. So capacity greatly limited the feasible size of an army in the pre-modern age. So these were all Xerxes' limitations. This was the scale of his challenge. DCTC, 
distance, conditions, time, and capacity. Gotta march a large army and all its supplies over a thousand miles through rough terrain, across non-existent roads, within a narrow campaigning season, with the very limited capacity of horse-drawn or oxen-drawn wagons and human carrying power, even if conditions remained decent. That was the challenge. And keep, keep in mind, once all this was done, Xerxes still had to fight a war. And this meant he faced a dilemma. His dad, Darius, the old Persian emperor, sent an army of 25,000 men to Greece, but that army was defeated at Marathon. So obviously that army was too small. Xerxes needed a bigger army than that. But how big was too big? Because thanks to the iron hand of logistics, as your army grows, it gets exponentially harder to supply. There's a rule of thumb here, let's call it the Xerxes rule. An army that is too small gets beaten. An army that is too big starves. Xerxes couldn't just add more men to infinity and beyond, because there would be a point where his army was literally too big to feed. Now, the size of the army Xerxes used in the invasion of Greece is still a matter of historical debate. Ancient Greek historians had this habit of making it out to be the biggest army that ever existed. This just orc horde, this Lord of the Rings orcish horde, because that made the Spartans and everyone else look really awesome for defeating them. The Greek historian Herodotus claimed that Xerxes brought two and a half million combat troops, along with an equal number of camp followers. Ancient and medieval sources always exaggerate the numbers. But that number, two and a half million, that's so unrealistic it's not even funny. Two and a half million men was ludicrously impossible for a pre-modern army to sustain with pre-modern logistics. It would have been the largest army ever and mustered in one place in human history. It would have starved to death far before it ever got to Greece. British historian Frederick Maurice pointed out in the 1930s that the water sources on Xerxes' line of march would not have come remotely close to sustaining this army. So how many men did Xerxes have, if we can't believe that ancient source? Given all the constraints that Xerxes was under, the amount of food he could support and sustain along his line of march, the state of the roads, the water sources available, the size of his camps according to the sources, and the travel time it would take the army to cross certain rivers, so on and so forth. You guys don't want all this math, I promise you. This is the part where I excise like 2,000 words from this episode because it was all the math of this. <laughs> Historian John Lazenby reckons that Xerxes probably brought around 70 to 80,000 fighting men to Greece. If we assume that the army was followed by an equal number of camp followers, a reasonable assumption from what we know of armies and their camp followers in the pre-modern age, that means maybe, maybe, at the very upper limit, Xerxes brought around 160,000 people to Greece. This was <laughs> huge. But it definitely wasn't no 2.5 million man orcish horde, <laughs> nothing like the legends depicted. And the logistics of even 160,000 mouths to feed along with all their animals, that was overwhelming enough. That's insane already. This would have been a major logistical challenge in any time period. So how did Xerxes sustain this army? How did he deal with the limitations of the iron hand of logistics, this 160,000 man army that needs to cross a thousand miles of difficult terrain to get to Greece. Well guys, Xerxes and the Persian government did a magnificent job. The planning took years, 
years of preparation requiring a level of bureaucracy and long-term planning and state power that no one else but the Persian Empire could do in this day and age. Because keep in mind, y'all, the Persians had conquered much of the known world. They did not do this by being a disorganized horde. They had long, long experience in projecting large armies over a huge distance. The Persians had gotten very good at logistics. Any empire that wants to stick around has to be good at it. The first and biggest priority for any pre-modern army was food. This was the bulk supply requirement. And we've already established it was impossible for the army to carry all the food it needed. But there were other ways. For one thing, Xerxes sent Persian bureaucrats and diplomats forward into northwestern Turkey and northern Greece to set up supply dumps of provisions along his line of march. He even had them build a road along this path in advance. And most commanders in history have done something like this. Hannibal, on his way into the Alps to invade Rome, sent agents ahead of his march to buy and secure food from local tribes. Charlemagne, the great Frankish king, ordered his vassals to plant grain crops in advance of next year's campaign along his line of march. George Washington's army, on its way to Yorktown, had staff officers riding ahead to arrange food supplies for the Continental Army. If you can't bring food with you, and over long distances you just can't, you use local supplies, bypassing the constraints of capacity. Herodotus describes a conversation between Xerxes and one of his generals, Artabanus, where Artabanus is whining, they'll know the army's too big, it's bound to starve. Xerxes like, dude, I've, I've been working on this for years, it's okay. Xerxes says, We are making our march now during the fairest season of the year. In the first place, we march carrying quantities of supplies with us, and in the second, whatever land and people we come to, we shall have their food, for we are marching against men who are farmers, not nomads. This is another rule of thumb for pre-modern logistics. An army can support itself by local supply, but only if it's passing through an area where that is possible. Xerxes was referencing a previous Persian campaign, one of his dad's campaigns, against the Scythians, a tribal people without a large agricultural base. It's either Scythians or Scythians, I probably mispronounced it. The Persian army had been almost destroyed from lack of forage in the countryside. The Scythians had burned the plain in front of them so their horses couldn't eat anything, and the Scythians just kept retreating. They didn't have a farm to defend. So the Persian army had to turn back and almost starve to death. The Persians also pulled off two big engineering projects in preparation for the invasion. Projects that were so impressive they freaked out everyone in Greece. First was a pair of massive pontoon bridges that connected Europe and Asia at the Dardanelles, built in advance to save time. The bridges required hundreds of boats and tons of engineering materials. It was the, the Greeks like, oh my goodness, they bound Europe and Asia together, this is insane. The second project was a canal that the Persians dug along the base of the Mount Athos Peninsula. This was done to shield the Persian fleet from the Mediterranean weather as it rode along the coast. The canal took three years to complete, another massive feat of engineering that you can still see the traces of from the air today. The bridges and canal were both ready by 480 BC to help the army and navy bypass the constraints of distance and conditions. Xerxes would set out from his winter quarters at Sardis as soon as the campaigning season began in 480 BC. He would have his army set and camp ready to go. As soon as the roads are good, let's go, let's get moving. By starting as soon as possible, Xerxes would have as much time as possible to bypass the time constraint. 
So what does this all mean? Xerxes was pulling out every stop to overcome the limitations of DCTC, distance, conditions, time, capacity. He was pre-staging food stocks along his line of march. He was assembling a massive baggage train to carry what he couldn't find along the way. He was building roads, building canals, building bridges, starting as early as possible. And finally, Xerxes' army would be shadowed by a powerful battle fleet. It is pretty clear from the sources this was not a supply fleet and never intended to be one. It was intended to defeat the Greek navy and allow his army to bypass any obstacles. There's a bunch of mountainous choke points in Greece where an army can hold off another army for a long time unless the navy can outflank them. See, Xerxes was on a timetable. If he failed to win a decisive victory before the campaign season was over, if he failed to crush the Greeks in 480 BC, he would lose because the weather would close in on him. Conditions. The conditions constraint would close. And as we know, Xerxes lost. Which sucks for him, I guess, because on the logistical side of things, Xerxes did everything right. So what went wrong? You can do everything right and still lose, because there is one more factor of the iron hand of logistics. This is the thumb. We have four fingers, DCTC, but we have the thumb, the factor that will choke off your windpipe if you fail to account for it. Our final factor. The factors, we have distance, conditions, time, capacity. Factors that Xerxes overcame and overcame well. But the thumb, the final factor, is the enemy. DCTC plus E. No matter how good your plan is, the enemy always gets a vote. The first real problem that the Persians faced was a storm, which damaged Xerxes' fleet pretty badly on his way into Greece, in spite of his wonderful canal. But he could shrug that off, something's always going to go wrong. Then Xerxes ran into a few thousand Greeks holding the narrow mountain pass of Thermopylae. Hmm, just like I thought. They're going to try and delay me at one of these choke points. The issue with Thermopylae wasn't, oh, the Greeks will destroy my army. There was no chance of that, no. Xerxes' problem was time. When he arrived at Thermopylae, it was already mid-August. He'd already taken months just to get to this point. He had days left to finish his campaign before the late autumn storms arrived. Even with all that extra time he'd bought, it would just take him so long to get here. Xerxes wasn't like, oh my goodness, the Spartans are so amazing. He was looking at his watch. Hmm, hmm, running out of time. Time, oh, oh, you say there's a, ma a path through the mountains where we can flank them? Do that. Problem solved. The Persians won the Battle of Thermopylae, overwhelmed the last few defenders, and marched through the pass. Ooh, that was a close one, but it only cost me a couple of days. And hey, we killed the Spartan king. Bonus points. So yeah, from the Persian perspective, Thermopylae was a speed bump. Then a few days later, Xerxes got to Athens and burned it to the ground. So Xerxes probably crossed his pontoon bridges in mid-May, fought Thermopylae around mid-August, and burned Athens by the middle of September. You know, that's not bad time. Mission accomplished. Xerxes got his army into Greece within his time frame, destroyed Athens, killed the Spartan king. The logistics system worked magnificently. Now all that was left was to finish the job. But the enemy always gets a vote, and only a few days after the Persians had captured Athens, the Greeks tricked Xerxes' fleet into a trap in the Straits of Salamis and defeated it. The defeat did not destroy Xerxes' fleet, it didn't even really damage his army. But this battle saved Greece, because it happened in late September, 
when Xerxes only had hours left in the campaigning season when he was out of time. Without a naval victory, he could not use the seas to outflank the Greek positions on the Isthmus of Corinth. And if he couldn't do that, he could not complete his campaign before winter. Xerxes and the Persians had, from a logistics standpoint, done everything right. They had done everything they could, but they still could not project enough power to defeat the Greeks within the allotted time frame. After the defeat at Salamis, Xerxes left his army in Greece so they could finish the job next year, 479 BC. And this army did survive over the winter by foraging and bringing in food supplies from the surrounding countryside, as Xerxes had predicted they could. But when Xerxes' enormous army of around 70,000 men marched out for battle, that army that it took years to assemble, prepare, project over a thousand miles, well, the Greeks had matched it. They brought 70,000 men to the Battle of Plataea, because their supply lines extended over only a few miles. The Iron Hand was much more forgiving at that distance. Xerxes had been trying to thread a very difficult needle. Armies that are too small get beaten. Armies that are too big starve to death. Xerxes had assembled and supported as large an army as he could over such a long distance, and it was still not big enough. He now had equal numbers to the Greeks, and the Greeks destroyed his army at Plataea, ending the Persian invasion of Greece. If Xerxes had somehow had the stupid mega horde that the Greek historians claimed, the Greeks never would have stood a chance. But instead, the mightiest empire of the ancient world pulled out all the stops to beat the iron hand of logistics, and at the end of the day, it just wasn't enough. Xerxes' invasion had been choked out by the iron hand. He had navigated its issues with amazing skill, the Persian war machine had done everything it was supposed to do, but he was bound by the technology of his time, which placed a hard limit on the size of the force he could send to Greece. He had navigated the iron hand of logistics well, maybe too well. He had been so concerned with the logistics that he failed to gauge exactly how big his army and fleet needed to be to win the war, and it cost him the conquest of Greece. To demonstrate just how long-lasting this problem would remain, we can fast forward almost 2,300 years to see another great conqueror running into the same hard limits. This was Napoleon, one of history's two or three greatest generals, who brought 600,000 men on his invasion of Russia in 1812. But 600,000 men were such a colossally huge army that it could not be remotely supported by the technology of the time, technology that it had not fundamentally changed since 480 BC. Napoleon's army was still propelled by muscle power, foot and hoof, no matter how many cannons or muskets they had now. Forget the winter, Napoleon's army was disintegrating on its way into Russia because it could not be supported over such a long distance in such a barren country. He tried to march too large of an army over too great of a distance without enough time to win his army before winter without the capacity to support it. And of course, the Russians refused to play his game and kept retreating and burning the crops behind them, leading his army on to its inevitable destruction. Xerxes' army was too small, so it got beaten. Napoleon's army was too large, so it starved to death. The iron hand of logistics strikes again. But Napoleon was only a couple of decades away from the first great transformation in military logistics since the taming of the horse. Let's move ahead, far ahead, to the American Civil War, and see how the Union and Confederacy supported their armies 
in the age of steam. The Industrial Revolution of the early 19th century transformed the possibilities of military supply. The American Civil War, along with, as we know, the Crimean War a decade earlier, showcased this evolution. But even if the iron hand of logistics changed, even if it transformed, it never vanished, and it would shape the outcome of the Civil War. Because the outcome of the conflict was not inevitable. It's a pretty well-known fact that the North, the Union, had a resource advantage over the Confederacy. They had more men, more industry, more food, more weapons. That's all well and good. But countries with greater resources lose wars all the time. Unless you can make those resources count, turn them into combat power, then project and sustain that power competently into enemy territory, those resources mean jack. And the Union's ability to do this was not a predetermined outcome because the Union challenge was enormous. They had to conquer the Confederacy, a densely populated area twice the size of Ukraine with a long coastline and difficult terrain. Just like with Xerxes in the Persian Empire, the iron hand of logistics can make resource advantages count for much less. Lots of distance, very difficult conditions, and it would take a lot of time. So the Union challenge of the American Civil War wasn't just defeating the Confederate military. It was in organizing, supplying, and transporting military power over the enormous distances of the American continent. In short, to overcome the Iron Hand of logistics. But the Confederacy also had to overcome the Iron Hand. They had to sustain their armies as well. Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia was almost as large in combat troops, around 70 to 80,000 most of the time, as the army Xerxes had led into Greece. To feed, arm, and equip multiple armies of close to this size was a major challenge to the Confederate government and economy. Remember our constraints, distance, conditions, time, capacity, DCTC, plus E. Both sides still faced those obstacles over two millennia after Xerxes' failed invasion of Greece. When the Civil War began, lots of observers worldwide, especially in Europe, expected the Union to lose. And this was because they understood logistics. They understood what a difficult task the Union had in front of them. And honestly, had the Civil War happened 30 years earlier with the same borders, I think the Union would have lost. They would have faced the same problem Xerxes or Napoleon faced. The South was on the defensive. The North had to go into their territory. Any army large enough to defeat the Confederacy would have been too big to sustain by the old styles of logistics, the horse and the cart, and the ore-powered or wind-powered boat. There were ways around this. After all, big armies had conquered countries throughout history, but none of them applied in the Confederacy. The distances were too great, the region too huge, the enemy forces too formidable. It seemed impossible for the Union to conquer the Iron Hand of Logistics. But as we know, the North did win because of steam power. Steam power transformed the Iron Hand of Logistics. 
Railroads allowed large-scale transport at previously unthinkable speeds and especially distances. Steamboats turned America's large navigable rivers into waterborne supply highways. The rivers and the rails were the blood vessels of the Civil War, pumping life into military operations across a continent. Master these arteries, win the war. But James, you say, what did the railroad and steamboat really change? Aren't these just bigger wagons and bigger boats? Well, not exactly. The difference between the pre-modern and the modern world is marked by the movement from muscle power to machine power. In short, automation. Where previously supplies had to be transported by men or animals over land, and even over water a lot of the time, now the steam was doing the work. Historian Christopher Gable estimates that steam power increased logistic capacity tenfold. Let's use an example. Time for some napkin math. What will one ton of fuel get you? If that fuel is animal fodder, food for horses, that's enough for a team of 26 horses to travel three days. That will get them roughly 36 miles, and they can pull around 39 tons over those 36 miles. 39 tons over 36 miles in three days. But a ton of wood in the furnace of a steam engine can pull 150 tons over 36 miles of railroad in an hour. 150 tons in an hour versus 39 tons in three days. The railroad was radically more efficient, and steamboats were even better. Capacity, one of our iron fingers, had been transformed, and more capacity meant larger armies could be supplied over a longer distance. It's from this point of where we have railroads that we see armies get to the huge sizes that they'll get in the world wars, because previously this was not possible. The Civil War was a railroad and river war, and you can see this just by looking at a map. Every major Union advance into the Confederacy ran along either a rail or water route. Every large battle was fought within a few miles of the rail or water routes. Every major northern objective they tried to capture, every southern objective they tried to defend, was a critical link in this system. Even if horses and wagons still had to pull supplies away from the railhead and river port, they never, had, they never could never get rid of horses and wagons, most of the effort was now being done by steam, the distance was being conquered by steam. The Union and Confederacy assembled the largest armies ever seen on the American continent, armies that could only be supported by the use of these logistic lines and how each side managed these lines, how they used these resources, that made a big difference. Both the Union and Confederacy had to organize their resources to meet the demands of the conflict. Hundreds of thousands of soldiers on each side had to be armed, equipped, fed, clothed, housed, treated for med with medical care. This required management on a scale America had never known. And when it came to management... Skill and management, well, the Union won. Some of the outstanding Union leaders of the war weren't the frontline generals. They were the men running things behind the lines, the less famous names. Some of our unknown soldiers for this episode, because even a lot of Civil War buffs don't know about some of these people. For instance, Montgomery C. Meigs, a West Point grad and expert civil engineer, had led construction projects all over America, you see the dome of the U.S. Capitol building? That's Montgomery C. Meigs. He was renowned for his organizational skills. 
1861, President Lincoln appointed him as the U.S. Army's Quartermaster General, the man responsible for supplying and transporting the whole Union Army. Meeks was actually a Southerner. He was from Georgia, but when the war came, he stayed loyal to the Union. It was the Confederacy's loss, because Montgomery Meigs was one of history's most skilled supply officers. Indispensable. This guy was indispensable to the Union war effort. One of the four or five guys they could never have done without. He supervised the creation of a vast military logistics network, sending quartermaster officers to every major city and railroad hub to manage the flow of supplies. He wielded amounts of money and government power in a way that put any previous U.S. government official in his shadow, and he did it efficiently and without corruption. He was, he was one of, dedicated to weeding out corruption within his quartermaster department. At its height, Meeks's quartermaster department consumed one half of the output of all Union in industry. Like half the U.S. economy was being funneled through his department, and he was doing it well. But getting those supplies to the army meant managing the railroads. Because the railroads surpassed old issues of the iron hand of logistics, but they created new ones. American railroads were run by dozens of companies, many with different gauges and different infrastructure, putting a crimp in capacity. They were still prone to the weather, and railroads in rough terrain couldn't carry as much as railroads in flat terrain. Conditions they went through enormous wear and tear and required extensive maintenance, especially the longer distances they had to run. Distance. And all the single-track railroads, switching stations, junctions, turntables, required timetables and coordination to run efficiently. Time. So railroad management was a highly specialized job description. This was a complicated system that required subject matter experts. You have the resources, but can you use them? So Lincoln and his Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, made a key hiring decision. Daniel McCollum, General Superintendent of the New York and Erie Railroad. The Scottish-born McCollum was put in charge of all United States military railroads and, with no previous military experience, I'll point out, eventually became a major general. But McCollum, Daniel McCollum, is one of the founders, literally, of modern management. He had written the first book outlining general principles of management, developed the first modern organizational chart, all the motivational speakers and stuff telling you how to manage a company. This is their forebear. This is the guy who invented modern corporate management. So when Daniel McCollum got his hands on the railroads, he got them organized. He got them moving. He put together a construction corps that employed 10,000 men. He split the railroad network into divisions, each with its own set of staff and engineers, broken down into subdivisions, gangs, and squads, and an army of support personnel for the workers to keep the railroads running. Daniel McCollum was running his own small army behind the armies to maintain and repair the railroads. The North didn't just have more railroads. Under McCollum's supervision, they laid 4,500 miles of new track during the Civil War. Dan McCollum was applying scientific management to overcoming the iron hand of logistics. One of McCollum's chief subordinates, Colonel Herman Halt, had been superintendent of the Pennsylvania Railroad. He had helped to design the famous Horseshoe Curve near Altoona, Pennsylvania. That's a very famous uh, railroad bend. It's on a bunch of postcards and stuff. Halt was a genius of railroad construction and repair, building and rebuilding dozens of bridges and trestles. 
he kept prefabricated truss and trestle sections on hand of his own patented design to fix damaged or destroyed bridges. In one case, Confederate raiders destroyed a bridge, and Haupt had a new one put together over this enormous chasm in under 72 hours. And you did not mess with his railroad. When one Union general tried to divert one of his trains and Haupt said no, the general sent a message to Secretary Stanton complaining about this insubordinate colonel, only for the Secretary of War to tell him, hey, General, check yourself. Don't touch Colonel Haupt's railroad. Logistics management was the key to Union success in the Civil War. The War Department centralized and organized supply and transportation more than any conflict in human history. And this paid off. By my reckoning, no joke, the Union soldier of the American Civil War was better fed, equipped, and provisioned than any soldier the world had ever seen to that point. Only the Roman legionaries come close. But on the Confederate side, the opposite was the case. Now it is true that the Confederates had fewer railroads and fewer resources in the Union, but when you have scarcer resources, you have to manage them more efficiently. But the Confederate government's mismanagement of their logistics was a key factor in their defeat. For one thing, the South had been founded on the principle of states' rights and property rights. Well, one particular state's right to one particular kind of property, um, slavery. But this was bad for efficient logistics. North Carolina, for example, wanted the uniforms and food it produced to go only to North Carolina troops. Confederate railroad companies refused to allow government oversight of their operations. And Jeff Davis's government, Jefferson Davis, Confederate president, never really built the supply and logistics organizations that the Union did. They never really tried. They had no one like Montgomery Meigs or his quartermaster department. The inbuilt Confederate reluctance to centralize their war effort, because big government bad, handicapped Confederate logistics. The biggest failure was in the railroads. The South, unlike the North, never centralized railroad management. For one thing, all the expert railroad men were Yankees. Southern culture had always been, you know, contemptuous of industrialists and capitalists, seeing them as the source of Yankee corruption and depravity. They didn't invest much in industry or railroads. But this meant that the South didn't have those experts like McCollum or Halt. Not that they would have centralized railroad authority anyway, they saw the railroads as a civilian area where the government shouldn't be involved. And Confederate railroads suffered throughout the war because of this. The South didn't have the know-how to build new railroads quickly. And guess how many locomotives the South produced throughout the Civil War? Guess. Guess. Zero. The South did not produce one steam engine in the Civil War. The North produced hundreds. By the middle of the war, the Confederacy was tearing up some railroads to repair others. Maintenance was also extremely poor due to a lack of organization and spare parts. Confederate railroads were also incomplete. For instance, the lack of a railroad between Greensboro, North Carolina, and Danville, Virginia was a serious bottleneck in the southern supply chain. Though it, it, they didn't have enough capacity. The Confederate Congress approved a million dollars to make these 48 miles of track, but Davis was reluctant to spend the money because big government bad, and then he waffled about it. Poor management and lack of central planning meant that the railroad was only finished Two years later, when it was too late, the Confederacy had lost pretty much. The broken Confederate rail system failed to supply their armies. It's well known that the Southern troops were hungry, badly clothed, badly armed, 
But this wasn't because the South was running short of resources. They had lots of resources, but they weren't getting to the armies. One Confederate officer reported in 1864 that while his troops were starving, The whole of the middle and southern Georgia is full of fodder. I have seen with mine own eyes hundreds and thousands of bales of good fodder actually rotting for want of attention. See, there's plenty of food, but it's rotting in, in the warehouses because it can't get to the Confederate armies. Robert E. Lee's army ran so hungry that this actively influenced his strategy. There were times he had to send parts of his army away, send them out, outside Northern Virginia, because he couldn't feed them on the limited resources of Virginia. Lee invaded the North when he did on his major campaigns into invasion of the North, partially because Virginia was picked clean, the railroads weren't delivering, and his men had to eat. He said this explicitly before the Gettysburg Campaign, one of his major objectives in invading Pennsylvania, was to gather food from southern Pennsylvania's winter wheat harvest, which hits in around June or July. This affected his timing of the Gettysburg Campaign. The Confederacy's broken logistics influenced their strategic options. So when it came to using new technology to overcome the problems of distance, time, and conditions, and capacity, the Union had a clear advantage, not just because of their resources, but how they managed and used them. But still, it would require good generals to use this advantage to win the war. Luckily, the Union had Ulysses S. Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman. The decisive campaigns of the Civil War were fought in the Western Theater, the area between the Mississippi and the Appalachians. A relatively low-ranking general named Ulysses S. Grant looked at the map and saw how the North was going to win the war. Not just the railroads, the rivers. People have written about Grant tracing those rivers on a map with a finger, muttering to himself, because with the steamboats, rivers became highways, logistic lines, the seams along which General Grant could tear the Confederacy apart. Throughout 1862 and 1863, Ulysses S. Grant spearheaded this invasion of the Confederate heartland down the Tennessee and Mississippi rivers. This was war on the waters, with steamboat fleets supplying the Union Army. And just like the railroad, Secretary of War Stanton appointed a manager, Colonel Lewis B. Parsons, to centralize and manage steamboat transport along America's inland rivers. With Parsons' boats feeding his forces, Grant split the Confederacy in two down the Mississippi River with his capture of Vicksburg in July 1863. But after they ran out of river, the Union would have to advance inland using the railroads. And the problem with being dependent on the railroad was that the enemy, the windpipe-crushing thumb of the Iron Hand of Logistics, Factor E, got a vote. Just a few thousand Confederate cavalry raiding around in the backcountry could burn a railroad bridge or pry up the rails with crowbars. Raiding Union logistics became one of the key strategies the South used to tighten the iron hand around their enemies' throats. The most famous raider was a former slave trader named Nathan Bedford Forrest, nicknamed the Wizard of the Saddle. He would become a different kind of wizard after the war when he founded the KKK, so if there's a racist Olympics, this guy is, you know, one of the top three. As the Union advanced farther south, their railroads got longer and more difficult to defend. The North's numerical advantage actually decreased, it was never as large as it seemed, because they had to leave so many troops behind to defend their supply lines and rail junctions. So by 1864, 
With Grant promoted to command of all the Union armies, he gave command of the Union armies in the Western Theater to his most trusted subordinate and close friend, General William Tecumseh Sherman. Sherman's mission in 1864 was simple. Advance southeast from Chattanooga, Tennessee, and capture the major city of Atlanta, Georgia. But as Clausewitz said, even the simple things can be very difficult. Sherman had 100,000 men in his army, an enormous force larger than Xerxes' army. Supporting an army this large over a single road through the hundred miles of mountainous terrain between Chattanooga and Atlanta would have been impossible before the Industrial Revolution. But not anymore, because Sherman, like Grant, understood the possibilities that the railroad and steamboat had created. Almost every page of Sherman's military memoirs contains the word railroad or steamboat. He spelled out the importance of the railroad in those memoirs. He did our napkin math for us. Sherman's army in the invasion of Georgia required 160 railroad cars of supplies a day, almost 75,000 tons, to provide for his 100,000 men and 35,000 animals. Here's what Sherman says. To have delivered regularly that amount of food and forage by ordinary wagons would have required 36,800 wagons of six mules each, allowing each wagon to have hauled two tons 20 miles each day, a simple impossibility in roads such as then existed in that region of the country. Therefore, I reiterate that the Atlanta campaign was an impossibility without these railroads. The man himself said it. The Atlanta campaign would have been impossible without the railroad. And even with the railroad, it was barely possible. When Sherman's army invaded Georgia, it was at the end of a very long stretch of railroad, running up through Tennessee and Kentucky to the north. This was the several hundred mile long tether keeping the Union army alive. If anything disrupted it even for a bit, the army would be paralyzed. The Union even sent Daniel McCullum, the railroad organizer, down to Chattanooga in 1864, he worked overtime directly supervising Sherman's railroad line. Nathan Bedford Forrest was rampaging through Mississippi and Tennessee, tearing up track and burning bridges and attacking Union outposts, in one case massacring black soldiers who had surrendered at Fort Pillow in April 1864. And every time Forrest hit the railroad, a little shockwave went through the whole Union supply system and something had to be done to fix it. Sherman got so frustrated with Forrest's raids that he was exploding with fury. That devil Forrest must be hunted down and killed if it costs 10,000 lives and bankrupts the federal treasury. Sherman, I'm going to need you to tone that energy level down by about 25%. So Sherman set out towards Atlanta in May 1864, opposed by the smaller Confederate army of General Joseph E. Johnston. The early months of the campaign followed a pretty simple pattern. Sherman would advance, find the Confederates in a defensive position, then send part of his army out around the rebel flank to sort of maneuver them out of the position. His units could only move nine miles away from the railroad with the horses and wagons he had available, so his army was pretty much tethered to the tracks. Johnston would fall back to a new position when he was outflanked, and he would tear up the railroad tracks behind him. Sherman would move forward, repairing the track as he went. He had organized several battalions of railroad engineers, and this was their only job. Sherman could only move as fast as the track was repaired behind him. So Sherman's advance on Atlanta had two fronts. As he fought the Confederate armies in front of him, 
Daniel McCollum and his U.S. military railroad was constantly repairing, maintaining, and running the railroad behind him, fending off Confederate raids in the meantime. This lifeline keeping Sherman's, this long tether keeping this army alive on its way into Georgia. But Sherman was approaching Atlanta for a reason. It wasn't just a big industrial center, one of the most important cities in the South. Atlanta was a railroad hub. The food and supplies feeding Lee's army in Virginia, the fortresses on the coast, the entire Confederate war effort, a lot of it passed through Atlanta. The Confederate logistics system was already in really bad shape. Take Atlanta out, it's like taking the arc reactor out of Iron Man's armor. So when Sherman finally did get within striking distance of Atlanta, the Confederates sat in their trenches and just waited for him to attack. Like, come, come get us. <laughs> but Sherman wasn't dumb. Instead of charging in like a maniac, he sidestepped around Atlanta, circled the defenses of the city, and snapped the railroad lines one by one. Jefferson Davis replaced General Johnston with the more aggressive General John Bell Hood. The Confederates launched a bunch of attacks on Sherman's army, but he was just holding them off with one hand while he continued to circle Atlanta, pulling up those railroad lines out of the earth. If he cut every railroad leading into the city, tearing up these tracks, the Confederates would have no choice but to evacuate or starve. On September 1st, 1864, Sherman's troops cut off the final railroad leading into Atlanta, and the South could no longer hold the city. General Hood evacuated, and Sherman marched in the next day. He had captured one of the Confederacy's most important cities. But now Sherman faced a new dilemma. Hood's army, freed up from having to hold Atlanta, moved around behind him to attack his long, vulnerable railroad line. Sherman had to keep spreading his army out, running back and forth along the railroad and fending off Hood's attacks. That's his lifeline. But Sherman didn't have enough troops to defend the whole railroad and hold Atlanta at the same time, and Hood knew this. His goal was to force Sherman to abandon Atlanta the same way Sherman had forced him, by snapping the railroad, evacuate, or starve. So this is the dilemma. How do I hold Atlanta and hold my supply line? I don't have enough troops to do both. But this is where Sherman revealed the kind of scary genius that made him a great commander. Because Sherman's chief quality, he wasn't evil. He wasn't, you know, a monster. He was just ruthless. He saw the way from point A to point B, no matter how crazy or horrible it was. Sherman realized that his army didn't have to hold something to deny it to the enemy. He could just destroy it. Don't have enough troops to defend Atlanta? Well, what if there is no Atlanta? The Confederates kept threatening his supply line. Well, what if there is no supply line? What Sherman proposed was simple but difficult. Destroy Atlanta's industrial and military facilities, then march across Georgia to Savannah with 60,000 men. Sherman knew what Xerxes knew. You can only live off the land in a country that will support it, and all his intelligence sources said that Georgia could support it. They could survive without their supply lines. By eating all that food and forage that the Confederate logistics system had been unable to deliver, all that food that was just sitting all over Georgia, unable to make it to the Confederate armies. And in the process, Sherman would destroy every railroad in his path. Sherman's bosses thought he was crazy. Lincoln, Stanton, even Grant were like, you are nuts. You're going to take 60,000 men into enemy territory with no rail line, no river. Sherman, y'all right down there? But Sherman reassured them that he knew what he was doing. I can make the march, and I can make Georgia howl. 
Against all accepted military logic, Sherman abandoned his supply line and marched through Georgia from November 15th to December 21st, 1864, like an astronaut cutting his tether and floating into the void. Sherman's 60,000-man army burned a 60-mile-wide belt of destruction across Georgia, feeding themselves from the countryside and destroying everything of military value in their path. They ripped up 300 miles of railroad track and destroyed every bridge they found, creating an irreparable dead zone in the Confederate railroad network. Even if it wasn't the genocidal rampage the South later claimed it was, Sherman's march was harsh, and it annihilated the Confederate logistics system. By abandoning his supply lines, Sherman had slipped out of the iron hand of logistics, and by living off the Confederate heartland and ruining their fragile railroad system, closed it around the South's neck. Within six months, the Confederate armies, unfed, unsupplied, barely clothed, and staring at the ruin of their cause, had surrendered. Sherman's march to the sea dealt the mortal blow to the Confederacy by destroying its logistic capacity to continue the war. Sherman's campaign only confirmed what superior Union management and poor Confederate management had wrought. The railroads were valuable, the only way to support a large army over such an enormous distance in the 19th century. But they still obeyed the iron hand of logistics. They weren't just lifelines, they were also targets. To preserve, repair, and manage your own logistics, while destroying those of the enemy, that was the future of warfare. As time marched on, the demands of modern war would make logistics more important, not less. As capacity grew, the demands of a modern military grew even faster. Even as technology marched on, the iron hand of logistics continued to exert its force on those who neglected it. And no army in modern history has paid a higher price for that neglect than Adolf Hitler's Wehrmacht in the Second World War. Adolf Hitler and the Wehrmacht, the Nazi German military, were riding high in late 1940. They had conquered most of Europe, knocking out Poland in 1939, and Denmark, Norway, Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, and most of all, France, in 1940. It was a stunning series of military victories, tarnished only by the failure to destroy the British Army at Dunkirk and the, Luf and the Luftwaffe's, the Air Force's, failure in the Battle of Britain. But the ink was barely dry on the French surrender before Hitler ordered preparations for his grandest campaign yet, Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union. But the largest land offensive in history would fail, for lots of reasons, one of which was that the Germans neglected the iron hand of logistics. Things had changed in the 80 years since the Civil War, from 1861 to 1941. Logistic capacity had increased, first with more efficient railroads and steamships, then with the invention of the motor vehicle and the airplane. But even as capacity increased, this was matched by a growth in what an army required. The major supply problem was no longer food, it was ammunition, and later fuel. 
artillery was the dominant weapon system of the world wars. And artillery is a greedy beast because its ammunition gets used so quickly. Wars in the 20th century required unprecedented amounts of logistics and materiel. Sherman's single-track line running to Atlanta could never have sustained a World War army. And despite its reputation as the most advanced military of its time, a reputation reinforced by video games and documentaries and coffee table Christmas gift for dad books, the German military's logistics were a historic weak point. Kind of like how the Confederacy had inbuilt prejudice against central management, Germany had a strategic and military culture detrimental to logistics. Due to being historically surrounded by enemies, Germany always tried to win its wars with short, decisive campaigns. This was an approach that discouraged logistical planning, since the war was supposed to be over before that became a problem, and encouraged an overfocus on combat arms at the expense of sustainment and support. And Hitler, a First World War combat veteran, made this problem worse. Like lots of combat arms guys, he had a lot of contempt for the rear area slackers, the pogues, the support soldiers. They seemed inherently cowardly compared to the heroes of the combat arms. Logistics were secondary to combat, combat was a matter of will, and the stronger will would prevail. Most of the German generals shared this mindset. To them, logistics was someone else's job. Even the supposed genius Erwin Rommel, the Desert Fox, basically told his logistics officer in North Africa, Hey, I make the plans. Your job is to support them. Don't tell me what I can't do. The Germans had their priorities backwards. When planning military operations, can we support this, should be the first question you ask, not an afterthought coming up after the plan is already made. The German mindset of plan the invasion first and ask logistics questions later would lead to their defeat in World War II. When people think of the German World War II military, the word that comes to mind is Blitzkrieg. Not an accurate word exactly, but we've been over that, I'm just going to call it Blitzkrieg. And the image is a fast motorized army using tanks and planes to move quickly and circle and destroy the enemy before you can react. And that was certainly what the Germans wanted Blitzkrieg to be. But the core of Blitzkrieg wasn't the plane or the tank. It was the truck. The fast-moving supply vehicle for the fast-moving Panzer Division. But like any new technology, the truck came with limitations of its own. It took around 1,600 trucks shuttling back and forth to match the capacity of a single double-tracked railway line. The truck also ran into the same problems that horses and wagons always had. The supply vehicles needed supplies. A truck needs fuel, spare parts, motor oil, and personnel. It, in it incurs wear and tear the more distance and time it has to be driven and the worse the conditions are. The truck was still bound by the iron hand of logistics. Railroads were still more efficient than trucks at distances above 200 miles because they could move more material with less fuel and maintenance and manpower. Of course, a truck could go where a railroad couldn't, and that was its major advantage. That's why it was necessary to supply the Blitzkrieg. But Germany's larger problem was its lack of resources. The German automobile industry was always far behind something like the American or even the British motor industry, lacked native sources of rubber and oil, so it never produced enough vehicles to really motorize the German army. Germany did try to fix this issue by making synthetic oil and rubber, but never enough to meet requirements. 
The Germans just never had enough vehicles or fuel. They were always running into issues with this throughout the war. Germany's always running out of gas. The result was that there were two German militaries. First, the motorized or mechanized units, the famous Panzer divisions, full of trucks and tracked vehicles, fast and furious, the popular image of the German war machine. But most of the German army consisted of the foot-slogging infantry divisions. Each regular German infantry division was allocated 942 motor vehicles at the start of World War II, but also 1,200 horse-drawn wagons. And throughout the war, the German infantry divisions were gradually robbed of their trucks to re-equip the panzer divisions, because there just weren't enough trucks to go around. On the eve of Operation Barbarossa in 1941, the average German infantry division was less motorized than it had been when World War II began. They mostly marched into Russia the same way Xerxes' army had marched into Greece, by foot and by hoof. The Germans would invade Russia with 33 mobile divisions and 111 infantry divisions, a 1 to 3 ratio of the motorized army versus the foot and hoof army. So only 25% of the German military is motorized. But as we know, horses and carts cannot support a large army over a long distance, especially not with these higher supply requirements. This meant that German logistics were still railroad-bound. Only the railroad could support the German military over the enormous distances of Russia. The railroads were still critical to German transport, even in the age of the automobile and airplane. So despite being famous for motorized warfare, the German military would still be heavily, heavily dependent on older forms of transport, the horse and wagon and the railroad, for its logistics in the invasion of the Soviet Union. The German military was nowhere near as modern as its propagandists and modern-day hobbyists would have you believe. So the German challenge, the German logistic problem for Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union, was enormous. It would be the largest land invasion in history. The sheer size of the operation is still staggering. The number of troops was three and a half million. 35 times the size of Sherman's army, an invasion force never seen before or since. The Axis had around 3,500 tanks and 3,500 other armored vehicles, in addition to tens of thousands of mortars, artillery pieces, trucks. Supplying Operation Barbarossa would be the biggest logistical challenge any military had ever faced. And where was this force going? Russia, with its incredible distances and extremely difficult conditions. It was around 700 miles from the German border to the Soviet capital at Moscow. But no one in the German high command really seemed to worry about that. They were confident of victory. The Russians were weak, decayed, corrupted by communism and socialism. Hitler himself said, We only have to kick in the door and the whole rotten structure will come crashing down. The German generals expected to annihilate the Red Army within the first few weeks, within a few hundred miles of the Soviet border. The, the, the way Germany always tries to win its wars, one short, strong campaign. They planned their entire campaign on this assumption, including the logistics. Because the logistics planners had a bit of a doozy of a challenge on their hands. German logistics still depended on the railroad. The problem was the Soviet railroads were on a different gauge. The tracks were a different width, meaning German trains could not use them. The Germans would have to modify the tracks to meet German gauges. They would also try to capture Soviet locomotives and rail cars, but 
that, and that was part of their plan too, which is not great for the plan, but also they never captured sufficient numbers of these to meet the demands. So the Germans would have to modify the tracks, but this would take time. Lots of time. The Germans had several battalions of railroad troops, the Eisenbahn Truppe, but because they were logistics troops, pogues, they were low priority for training resources and manpower. This meant that the railroad, so important to German logistics, would be useless for the first few weeks of the war. But that would be fine, because they'd win the war in a few weeks, right? So for the first few weeks of the war, the Wehrmacht would have to be supplied by trucks and horse carts alone. Horse carts were obviously impossible over such a long distance, we've established that already. So let's do some napkin math. After robbing the infantry divisions of half their motor vehicles, drafting civilian vehicles, and captured French military trucks, the Germans would have just enough trucks to drive an average of 54,000 tons of supplies to the front lines. This was with the usage of every truck they had available, no reserves whatsoever, using literally 2,000 different models of vehicle, making the spare part situation a nightmare. The 18th Panzer Division alone was using 111 different models of truck. But even with all this effort, the 54,000 tons of lift were not enough. Because those 54,000 tons of truck space would take six days to drive even half the distance to Moscow and back, loading and unloading times included, if everything went perfectly. So at most, they could deliver 9,000 tons of supplies to the forward units daily. But the 33 German Panzer and Motorized Divisions, the Mobile Divisions, require 9,900 tons of supplies daily, at minimum, if everything went perfectly. And the farther they went, the more time it would take the trucks to get to them, so that margin would decrease. If every infantry division and every mobile division was supplied by trucks alone, they would get 70 tons of supplies daily, like 30% of their requirements at best if everything went perfectly. If they used the trucks to only support the 33 mobile divisions and left the 111 infantry divisions to kick rocks, they would have just enough supply capacity to get 300 miles into Russia, half the distance to Moscow, if everything went perfectly. <laughs> Notice a trend here? The Germans were planning everything on the best case scenario. Even then, once they hit 300 miles, they would be at the end of their tether. Hitler's boys would have to wait till the railroads were converted before moving any farther. But that was fine, because they'd win the war in a few weeks. The German quartermaster general, General Edvard Wagner, understood the reality. When the Wehrmacht hit 300 miles from their bases, they would be at the end of their rope, if everything went perfectly. But when he presented this analysis to the German generals, they basically told him, Nah bro, it'll be fine. We'll defeat the Red Army in a few weeks, no sweat. You worry too much, dude. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. So the German supply system was inadequate to supply the troops past 300 miles, halfway to Moscow. And if it suffered any serious damage, it would probably be unable to do that. And the railways could not be repaired fast enough to win the war in time. You might look at this and think, well, this is impossible. It can't be done. And you're right. But what were the Germans going to do? Cancel the invasion? <laughs> no, no, the Fuhrer has ordered this. This is happening. The Germans not only assumed they would beat the Russians in six weeks, they literally had to. If the Germans ran out of time, the other three fingers of the Iron Hand would close on them. Distance as they stretched their supply lines farther, incurring more wear and tear on their limited and non-replenishing stock of motor vehicles. 
capacity as the supply flow slowed to a trickle and the panzers ground to a halt. And conditions, because it is Russia and if you don't win your war quickly, winter is coming and good luck with your logistics then. Hitler and the German High Command planned Operation Barbarossa on a shoestring, on the logistic margins, with all their estimates based on the best possible outcome. Rather than changing their goals to meet what was possible, they convinced themselves that what was possible was just a question of will. On June 22, 1941, Hitler's Wehrmacht kicked off the invasion of the Soviet Union, Operation Barbarossa. The legendary Blitzkrieg at its apex, the largest invasion in history. 3.5 million men, 144 German divisions, multiple Axis allies, Panzer divisions full of tanks and armored vehicles blasting their way east, and behind them come the infantry, pulling their horse carts. There are three usual reasons you'll hear for why the Germans failed to defeat the Soviet Union. They are the vast Russian hordes, Hitler being dumb, and the Russian winter. But the Axis forces outnumbered the Red Army in the battle zone throughout 1941, and Hitler's generals had been an enthusiastic part of the planning process and dismissed any logistics concerns as afterthoughts. It was as much their fault as it was Hitler's, and the Germans were in deep, deep trouble long before winter arrived. The first and biggest problem was that the enemy always gets a vote. The Red Army took horrifying losses in the German Blitzkrieg, Colossal casualties, but it did not fall apart. It fought back and fought hard and would only fight back harder the longer the war went. As the Germans marched east, they were taking far more casualties and far heavier equipment losses than anticipated. The Russian military was not expected to fight this well. As the supply trucks rolled forward to bring ammunition and fuel to the Panzer divisions, they started running into Russian ambushes. That was bad enough, but then there were the roads. The primitive Russian road network turned to mush under the massive columns of trucks and horses, causing breakdowns, slowdowns, traffic jams, and the bad Russian roads, the conditions, meant that the fuel expenditure was higher than expected. The strain on tank and truck engines required more motor oil and engine replacements than expected. Don't even get me started on trying to find spare parts for a thousand different models of motor vehicle. Within 19 days of Barbarossa's kickoff, 25% of the German logistics trucks were already out of action. For a campaign planned on the margins with no reserve of vehicles, this was already a disaster. The railroad situation was even worse. Thanks to enemy resistance and their lack of training and resources, the Eisenbahn Truppe worked much slower than the Germans had planned. And like the Confederates, the Russians were tearing up the railroads and destroying the facilities behind them. By July 10th, the railroad behind Army Group North, advancing towards Leningrad, was supposed to be operating 10 trains a day. Instead, it was operating one. So the iron hand of logistics tightened around the Wehrmacht's neck fast, faster even than its most pessimistic planners had feared. Their capacity was degrading rapidly, their distances were growing longer, the conditions were horrible, and they were running out of time. Winter was coming and they were fighting an enemy that was tougher than they had ever dreamed. All this as their requirements for ammunition, fuel, motor oil, and spare parts were larger than they had ever anticipated. This is what planning on the logistics margins does. So guess what happened in mid-August 1941? Exactly what the logisticians said would happen. The German army got 300 miles from their border and DOING! 
Like a running dog hitting the end of its leash, they stopped. The truck convoys were like a rubber band and they had reached the point where they could stretch no farther. This was the maximum distance where the trucks could keep shuttling back and forth between supply dumps and front line. The first German crisis in the Soviet Union came not with winter, but in August 1941 when their willful ignorance of reality caught up with them. The iron hand of logistics strikes again. Oh, and it's six weeks in and the Red Army is not dead, the Red Army is getting stronger. It took the Germans two months to stockpile enough supplies to move forward, but by then it was October and the Wehrmacht was running out of options. They had to finish the campaign before winter, take the Soviet Union out in a single blow because time was running out. So even though their exhausted, weakened combat troops were barely surviving on insufficient supplies, even though they were still short of everything, tanks, trucks, motor oil, engines, spare parts, tires, men, food, Hitler ordered his generals to advance on Moscow. The new German offensive began on October 2nd, with the German supply system pumped up just enough to keep moving forward. But then, on October 9th, the iron finger of conditions kicked in. Because October and November in Russia is the Rasputitsa, the muddy season. Sudden torrents of rain turned the dirt roads into rivers of mud, locking the German units in place. Many of the French trucks and civilian vehicles they'd confiscated were not four-wheel drive. They had to be abandoned. They never got those vehicles back. The German infantry, exhausted after marching 500 miles into Russia, were feeding themselves by raiding the countryside, living off local food supplies just like Sherman, just like Xerxes. As much as Hitler screamed at his generals and pointed to the map, look, Moscow is right there. It's so close. How hard can it be? It's simple. Yes, but the simplest things are very difficult. Army Group Center was stuck in the mud for three weeks. It could only start moving again when the first layers of frost firmed up the ground, enough for the trucks and tanks to start rolling again. They moved forward again for about five seconds, because frost meant winter was here. The winter of 1941-42 was the coldest of the 20th century. Temperatures dropped to negative 37, negative 38 degrees Fahrenheit. The soldiers marched forward through blizzards. They froze. They got frostbite. The horses died. The water pipes on German locomotives froze and burst. Soldiers lit fires under their truck engines so they could be started. The Soviets were suffering too. The Russians were not immune to the cold. But the Soviets had winter clothing. And the Germans didn't. Why, why didn't the Germans have winter clothing? They, they knew they were invading Russia. Well... With only so much supply tonnage making it to the German front lines, the logistics planners had to make some hard choices. One of those choices was the choice to make ammunition and fuel the priority instead of winter clothing. I mean, it's October 1941. You have to win the war quickly. Do you want bullets for your gun or a winter coat? Which is going to kill you first, the Russians or Russia? It wasn't that the Germans didn't have winter clothing for their soldiers, it was just all back in those supply dumps. Like the Confederates in the Civil War, they had the resources, but the resources weren't getting to them. Despite all Hitler's screaming, the German advance ground to a halt in front of Moscow on December 5th, 1941. They were only 19 miles away, but it might have been on the surface of the moon for all they could actually get there. And then the Soviets struck back. General Yorgi Zhukov's Moscow counteroffensive didn't just stop the Germans, it almost destroyed them. 
The losses in men and material were near catastrophic, and the Germans barely managed to reestablish a defensive position near their old start line. 1941 ended with the Germans holding a massive front line, hundreds of miles deep into Soviet territory, supplied by a depleted motor pool, ramshackle railroads, and more and more, by horses and carts. The German motorized units never recovered from the losses of 1941. Their logistics would be bleeding out for the rest of the war. The bulk of the German military would demodernize, demotorize, starting in 1942, as those last few trucks the German infantry divisions had were gradually stripped away. The division between the small motorized Panzer Elite and the massive foot-slogging horse-dependent infantry grew wider and wider. For instance, by early 1942, the recon units and German infantry battalions were having their trucks confiscated and replaced with bicycles. So Hitler made one last throw of the dice, one more bid to knock the Soviet Union out in 1942. I'm not going to talk that campaign in too much detail. I just want to bring up air supply. Because you might think, James, but the German Luftwaffe had all these planes, couldn't those be used to supply? So, at the end of the 1942 campaign, the Germans outran their supply lines again and got themselves surrounded in Stalingrad. The German 6th Army was trapped inside Stalingrad. Hitler's Air Force chief, the head of the Luftwaffe, Hermann Goering, promised that he could supply the trapped 6th Army 265,000 Axis troops trapped in Stalingrad. I can supply those guys by air. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. In theory, Germany's 550 transport aircraft, which could eat tra each transport between 1 and 2 tons of supply per flight, should have been enough to provide the 700 supply tons the 6th Army needed daily. But once again, the Germans had planned around the best possible outcome, planned on the margins, because air supply also obeys the iron hand of logistics. The horrible conditions around Stalingrad imposed wear and tear on the aircraft. The limited airfield facilities didn't have the capacity to repair most of the planes, so only a fraction of the transport planes were running at any given time. And the distance and time to Stalingrad exhausted the pilots. Aircraft are a much more fragile, maintenance-heavy, management-necessary logistics tool than land or sea transport could ever hope to be. So at the end of the day, the German Air Force could never supply Stalingrad. Instead of 700 tons per day, they delivered an average of 85. This probably would have been impossible for even the United States Air Force at this point in history. Or almost any point in history to supply 265,000 men. Then, since the enemy always gets a vote, the Red Army struck. A Russian tank column fought its way to the German airfield at Tatsinskaya and destroyed half the transport aircraft on the ground, dooming the Luftwaffe's already futile attempt to supply Stalingrad by air. The city of Stalingrad surrendered two months later, and Germany was now undeniably losing World War II. The German story in World War II, at its most critical, must-win moments, is always a story of almost almost destroying the British at Dunkirk, almost destroying the Royal Air Force, almost taking Moscow, almost taking Stalingrad, Rommel almost breaking through to Egypt, the Germans almost breaking through at the Battle of the Bulge, so many times when they're just a few miles away from their objective. But these almosts had a lot to do with the iron hand of logistics. The resource deck was stacked against Hitler's war machine from the get-go, 
but the Germans constantly ignored what they were able to do in favor of what they wanted to do. Their generals had lots of fun drawing the arrows on the map and telling themselves that they made the plans. It was the logistics guy's job to support them. Sometimes they got away with it. Until a near-perfect storm of distance, time, conditions, low capacity, and a tenacious enemy brought the Blitzkrieg to a halt in Operation Barbarossa. If logistics are modern warfare, the Wehrmacht never really was that modern. The trail of dead horses on the road to Moscow is all the evidence you need. And by 1943, the Soviet Red Army was roaring back, Berlin in their sights, and they were carried on a fleet of well-made trucks, most of which said, Made in the USA. Because one country above all mastered military logistics, paving its way to become a global superpower. So now that we've seen pre-modern logistics, industrial logistics, and a failed attempt at modern logistics, let's see how global logistics shaped the dominance of the United States. World War II was a logistics war. Hitler's and Germany's failure to understand that was one of the reasons they lost. On the flip side, the United States' outstanding logistics system was one of the main pillars of victory over the Axis. We didn't just supply ourselves, we supplied the British, the Soviets, many other powers in the bid to defeat the Axis. But even the vast economic and industrial might of the United States would have to obey the iron hand of logistics. And even then, well, as Xerxes showed us, logistics will get your army to the war, but it doesn't always guarantee victory. So what was the American challenge? As we've seen, as warfare has evolved and grown in complexity throughout history, the logistical challenges have kept pace. Consider that Xerxes had very limited logistical means at his disposal. He was limited to wagons and wooden ships. But his army also had very limited requirements compared to a modern army. His biggest concern was food. And even 2300 years later, the only reason Sherman's army could cut their supply lines and march through Georgia was because food was their overriding logistical problem. And Xerxes' and Sherman's armies, despite those 2300 years, were about the same size. Armies usually didn't get much bigger than that. But in the brief time between the Civil War and World War II, armies became much, much larger, and their requirements per man even larger than that. A modern army requires modern logistics. So when the United States entered World War II after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, the challenge it faced made even Operation Barbarossa look relatively simple. Because Germany only had to worry about land logistics. The United States military had to fight essentially two wars simultaneously, one across the Atlantic against Germany, one in the Pacific against Japan. They would have to transport supply and sustain two large military forces, eventually totaling almost 8 million men and women overseas, across the world's two largest oceans. And the U.S. military would be a fully motorized, mechanized, airborne fighting force requiring immense supplies of everything under the sun. 
and the majority of the personnel in this military machine were not combat troops, but service troops. The World Wars is where we see the old military structures start to invert. For most of history, militaries had been majority combat troops. Less support personnel, more combat troops. But in World War II, the majority of America's uniformed servicemen and women were support, and that ratio has only become more lopsided over time. Projecting the largest American army ever assembled over two oceans and defeating two very dangerous military powers simultaneously required an unprecedented logistical effort, the largest the world has ever seen. So this final section is going to examine just how difficult it was to do this, all the obstacles the U.S. had to overcome in order to defeat the Axis. After all, you have the resources, but can you use them? Can you get them to the battlefield? Can you supply your forces across the oceans? Can you manage your logistic systems to place your armies in Europe and Asia to win the war? We assume, yeah, of course, because we know how the story ends. We know what happened. But in 1942, no one, no one in history had ever done anything like this. God King Xerxes would have pissed himself even thinking about these distances, this time, this capacity, these conditions, and the skill and lethality of this enemy. To win the greatest war in history, the United States had to overcome the iron hand of logistics. When the Second World War popped off, the U.S. Army was led by General George C. Marshall, who I rate as one of the four or five greatest, not just military leaders, but leaders, period, in American history. I'm not going to get started talking about Marshall, because I'll talk for most of the episode. But so, on the outbreak of war, Marshall cleaned house. He got rid of all the generals he considered too old, too cautious, or too dull. He replaced them with leaders from his little black book, a set of notes on the various qualities of officers he'd served with. He didn't pick leaders based on their reputation or time in service, but their character, fitness, proven competence, and professional education especially attendance at the Command and General Staff College or the Army War College. These schools educated officers not just in combat, but in supply, logistics, management, combined operations, modern professional military training. Marshall saw logistics as one of the defining principles of modern military art, and this was something he looked at when he selected his commanders. Combat experience wasn't his priority. One of his most important picks, Dwight D. Eisenhower, had never seen combat. He had been out of World War I. He had been in a training camp in, uh, in the Pacific Northwest. No, Marshall picked Ike because Ike was a planner, an organizer, a manager. A man who could overcome the iron hand of logistics. The importance Marshall placed on logistics also showed with how he reorganized the U.S. Army when the war began. He chose three men. Only three. You three are going to report directly to me. Lieutenant General Henry Hap Arnold, Chief of the Army Air Forces, Leslie J. McNair, Lieutenant General, Chief of Army Ground Forces, which were the combat units, and Lieutenant General Brehan B. Somerville, Chief of Army Service Forces, the Logistics, Maintenance, Support, Transport Troops. Marshall put logistics on the same level with the same rank as the Air Force and the Ground Forces, because he saw them as just as important. Somerville's service forces had to organize, package, and ship millions and millions of tons of supplies overseas. American industry swung into action to pump out tens of thousands of trucks and tanks and planes and guns and boots and K-rations and helmets and rifles and knives and condoms. 
The United States economy produced such an amazing volume of stuff throughout the war that it frankly boggles the mind. The Germans would have killed for like a tenth of this, you know, these resources. But with so much stuff, how were they going to get it all over to the war front, over these oceans? You have the resources, but can you use them? Projecting power across land is hard enough, but the sea is even harder. Ocean-borne transport is limited by the enormous distances, the time it takes to cross the sea, the conditions, weather conditions are can be terrible in the ocean, and the capacity of each ship. And the United States in World War II was projecting power, again, across two oceans simultaneously. Only one country in the world had ever done something close to this, and that was Great Britain during the American Revolution. I've talked this before, but the fact that Britain could sustain a large army across the Atlantic for almost eight years was a massive logistical feat in an age of wooden sailing ships. By 1941, ships had come a long way, capacity had increased, but also requirements had increased. And what had become much more problematic in the meantime was the enemy. Factor E, enemy always gets a vote. So the first Allied challenge was to transport millions of men and thousands of vehicles and thousands of planes, the massive force necessary to invade France and defeat Germany across the Atlantic from America to Britain. And Factor E intervened. The German U-boats were the thumb of the iron hand, trying to choke off the Allies' transatlantic logistics. The Battle of the Atlantic is what it was called. The struggle to control the sea routes between America and Europe was a logistics battle. Because on it, unless the Allies were able to pry the German thumb off their throats, they couldn't assemble enough forces in Britain to invade Europe. U-boat wolf packs sank hundreds of ships, causing thousands of de deaths and inflicting huge damage on the Allied shipping fleets. 8,651 sailors of the United States Merchant Marine, one in every 26, would die in World War II, a higher ratio of deaths to service than the Army, Navy, Air Force, or Marine Corps. You literally had a higher chance of surviving in the Marine Corps in World War II than in the Merchant Marine. It was the most dangerous job. Admiral Karl Dönitz commanded Germany's U-boat fleet. He believed that if Germany could sink 700,000 tons of shipping per month, the attrition would ruin Allied planning to invade Europe. And in the first few months of World War II, it seemed like Dönitz might have his way. American ships were unescorted, unconvoyed, using radio signals in the clear. They hadn't gotten the experience yet to figure out these were a problem. In the first six months of 1942, the Allies lost 410 merchant ships, more than 3 million tons of shipping. Donitz's strategy was that it didn't matter how, why, or where the ships sank, as long as it tightened the iron hand. The enemy's shipping constitutes one single great entity. It is therefore immaterial where a ship is sunk. Once it has been destroyed, it has to be replaced by a new ship, and that's that. But the Allies worked together to find solutions to the U-boat menace. Ships began to black out, move in convoys, be escorted by destroyers and sub-chasers. The British Admiralty had an entire intelligence office dedicated to hunting down U-boats, both to steer convoys away and to find them and sink them. Long-range aircraft scouted the seas using new air-to-surface vessel or ASV radar to track down the U-boats. And British cryptanalysts at Bletchley Park 75% of whom were women, broke the German U-boat signal codes in December 1942 and gave the Allies a decisive intelligence advantage. 
It took all these factors combined to break Germany's chokehold grip to remove that thumb of the iron hand of logistics from the Allied neck. After Dönitz's U-boats took unsustainable losses in the first half of 1943, the Battle of the Atlantic turned and the U-boats were eventually withdrawn. The first bottleneck had been broken and supplies began to pour across the ocean like a torrent. But there still just wasn't enough shipping to go around. Now, the United States was churning out an incredible number of transport ships called Liberty Ships, ugly slapped together vessels that were good enough for government work. But because of the time and distance factors, these ships were always in demand. There were a thousand fronts that needed supplies and reinforcements, including the Pacific. When the United States entered World War II, they made a strategic decision. This was Germany first. They made the decision with the Allies. Germany was more dangerous in the short term, so they were first priority. But there were also logistics con to consider. The Atlantic is only half as big as the Pacific. This meant that a buildup could occur a lot faster against Germany than against Japan. Think about it. If it took a ship about five days to cross the Atlantic and five days to come back, but ten days to cross the Pacific and come back, then twice as much can be delivered across the Atlantic in the same time. But by late 1943, there was enough shipping to support simultaneous offensives in both Europe and the Pacific. The massive battle fleet that the U.S. Navy assembled for the Central Pacific Campaign, the island-hopping battles that took America across the Pacific towards Japan, was a juggernaut that put the fear of God into anyone who saw it. The U.S. Navy was so well supplied that it even had a vessel whose sole purpose was to make ice cream for the servicemen. Now that is logistic management. The Japanese didn't believe this when their intelligence reports told them about like, there's no way they have one ship just making ice cream, that's ludicrous. They thought it was a joke. But no, this was just the overwhelming power of Allied logistics in World War II. When the Americans stormed these Pacific islands and any other beach in Europe or the Pacific, they used amphibious landing craft to get supplies and vehicles on the beaches, especially the famous LST landing ship tank. The LST had a drop-down ramp that could carry about 2,100 tons of equipment, essentially a freight train just dropping onto the beach. The U.S. built a thousand LSTs, but they were in such high demand that this was never enough. You know, you have to schedule your amphibious assaults around when the LSTs are available to support them. Entire battles of World War II only occurred when and where they did because of the scarcity of LSTs because no amphibious landing could get enough material on the beach fast enough without the capacity. Winston Churchill, fuming over the cancellation of one of his pet projects, grumbled that, The destinies of two great empires seem to be tied up in some goddamned things called LSTs. Churchill, I know this isn't your first encounter with the Iron Hand of Logistics. Quit whining. Using the enormous capacity of the U.S. Navy, projected over distance and time, sometimes in hurricane conditions against a deadly enemy, the Army and Marine Corps took one bloody little island after another. Tarawa, Saipan, Peleliu, Okinawa, and of course, Iwo Jima. These battles are pretty famous. But one major part of the Pacific War that's not so famous is the Submarine War. If German U-boats fail to defeat Allied logistics, U.S. submarine fleets kneecapped Japanese logistics. All this fighting on islands and overseas, along with its less developed industrial base, meant that the Japanese 
merchant marine was uniquely vulnerable. They were running all these convoys all across the Pacific. Allied submarines destroyed over half the Japanese merchant fleet before the war was over. So even before the bombing campaigns or the atom bombs touched Japan, the home islands were already critically short of oil, rubber, steel, and food. If Japan hadn't surrendered when it did, the bombings may not have been necessary to finish them off. Japan would have starved. The Allied submarine fleet compressed the Iron Hand not just on Japan's military, but the whole nation, doing what Sherman did in Georgia, just on the Pacific. As the Allied buildup in Britain began across the Atlantic, back to the Atlantic, as General Eisenhower prepared the invasion of France, supplies were pouring in, but they had to be unloaded, organized, transported, distributed. One of the big issues was port capacity. The British seaports had to be enlarged and new facilities built to cope with the sheer volume of materiel. The British railroad network was pretty good, but a lot of their tunnels were too low for a trailer carrying a tank, so they had to be enlarged. Troops needed housing, roads needed repairing. Enormous amounts of management from Eisenhower and his logistics chief, General John C.H. Lee. Eisenhower was planning his own logistics and attacking the enemies. He managed to get the 8th Air Force, the American Heavy Bomber Squadrons, to move their efforts away from German industry to German logistics. From January to June 1944, the B-17, B-24, B-25 bombers hit railroad junctions, bridges, and logistics hubs across northern France, crippling the French rail network. Soon the Nazis couldn't move supplies in the daytime because Allied fighter bombers would bomb the crap out of them. So Eisenhower's focus on German logistics didn't just rob them of capacity, but time. The Allies had stolen half of every day. The amount of planning and management that D-Day took was incredible. The culmination of two years of preparation to bypass not just the German defenses in front, but the iron hand of logistics in the rear. As we know, despite heavy casualties, the Allies got onto the beaches on June 6, 1944. But when the combat troops moved inland, they were followed onto the beaches by almost equivalent numbers of logistics troops to start offloading all the supplies but offloading fell behind schedule quickly and land because landing supplies right on the beaches wasn't sustainable. The allies needed to secure a port where they could ship in supplies, which was why planning had focused on seizing Normandy's main port of Cherbourg. The, the Americans captured the city in late June, 1944, three weeks after D-Day, but the Germans knew the allies needed the port. So they wrecked and sabotaged and booby trapped all the facilities. Cherbourg would not be functioning until the middle of August. The Germans did this to most port cities the Allies captured, hoping to crimp their logistics and slow their advance. The Allied response was the Mulberry Harbors. Enormous prefabricated floating harbors set up at Omaha Beach, Mulberry A, and Gold Beach, Mulberry B. Mulberry A was pretty much ruined in a storm a couple weeks after D-Day. There we go with conditions again, but Mulberry B survived. These helped, but they weren't enough. Most supplies still had to be dragged ashore over the beaches. Mulberry B was still functioning way past the point where it was supposed to. And this created a bottleneck. Because when the Allies did defeat the Germans in Normandy and Patton's tanks started racing across northern France, they ran smack into the iron hand of logistics. Napkin math. Each Allied division needed approximately 700 tons of supplies daily, at this rate mostly fuel. The United States had 22 divisions in France by late August 1944, 
so that's 15,400 tons of supply per day. Only 10,000 su supplies can be put over Omaha Beach per day and 6,000 over Utah on average. So the Americans had literally as many divisions as they could support in France. There were divisions that would be sitting in Britain and the US for months, waiting to be, that were, that were scheduled to go to Europe much earlier, waiting for the supply bottleneck to be loosened up so they could be committed to the fight. The capacity problem wasn't lack of supplies or lack of transports. America never had problem with that. It was the bottleneck created by the lack of port facilities and the limitations of dragon supplies over the D-Day beaches. And the longer their supply lines got, we see this theme, right? The more fuel their trucks consumed. Patton's Third Army was living literally hand to mouth, having to rely on daily supplies rather than on any stockpiles. Soon as they got any fuel at all, they couldn't build up a reserve. They put it in their trucks immediately. The most advanced American units were 250 miles from Cherbourg, starting to hit that limit. The Allies were almost at the end of the same tether that held the Wehrmacht back in Russia, the limit at which the trucks could not deliver sufficient supplies. Even the most powerful military logistics system in the world had to confront the issues of distance and capacity. The Allied logistics crisis was a World War II decision point. Eisenhower had to decide between giving all his units a little supply, advance on a broad front, or a few units a lot, advance on a narrow front. Historians tend to criticize Eisenhower for choosing either one of these, depending on what their prejudices are. But the logistics problem had to be resolved. So Eisenhower committed to a narrow advance up the highway into the Netherlands, the disastrous Operation Market Garden. American historians say, well, Ike should have given those resources to Patton instead. But Ike needed to capture the port facilities along the Channel Coast. The logistics problem needed to be resolved before he sent Patton racing off into Germany. And as we've seen, Patton was at the end of the tether anyway. Patton couldn't go farther even if he wanted to. The Netherlands strategy seemed like the best bet. In the end, Market Garden was a failure, and the Allied advance rolled to a stop at the German border more for lack of supplies and enemy resistance. It would take months before the railroads were repaired, the bridges were rebuilt, the port facilities were running enough to start the advance again. If the logistics bottleneck had been resolved, the war could have been over in 1944. But it took until 1945 for the Allies to finally defeat Hitler's Germany. The United States in World War II launched the greatest military logistical effort the world had ever seen, or God willing, ever will see. But even that was not always enough. You can have all the resources in the world, but run into bottlenecks regardless. You can do everything right, but sometimes the Iron Hand doesn't care. But still, the Allies did overcome the Iron Hand to win the war in Europe. Eisenhower, his staff, and his generals did an excellent job handling the Iron Hand of logistics and laid the groundwork for America's rise as a global superpower. It was the development of this logistic nervous system, this institutional experience, this massive projection of power across the ocean, all these supply bases and shipping lanes and seaports and logistics hubs that turned the United States into the global superpower. No other country on earth can wield the military power on the global scale that America can, a framework created during World War II when the largest economy on Earth transported 8 million servicemen and women over two oceans simultaneously to defeat the Axis. The scale of this is so huge, so monumental, that it shapes American strategic thinking to this very day. 
Think of all these bases we have all over the world. What are they for? Most of them aren't for combat. They're for logistics. Think forward 45 years to Operation Desert Storm in 1991. What's the incredible part of that war? We deployed 700,000 troops across the globe in less than six months with all their equipment, set up bases in the freaking desert far from any water source, then launched an offensive against the fourth largest army in the world, Saddam Hussein's Iraqi army. No other country in the world can do this. Not even close. You can tell how much America focuses on logistics today because the majority of America's military personnel are not combat troops, but support troops, and for good reason. What makes America a superpower is our ability to project that power around the world. It takes up a huge chunk of the defense budget. If we've seen one thing in this episode, it's the enormous management and effort and planning and resources required to do any of this. The simple things that are really difficult. Global logistics are the thing that America does that no one else can. For now. The United States has lost war since World War II but not because of logistics. Vietnam, Afghanistan, those were some of the best supplied wars in human history. But that hasn't been enough to win wars. America's military failures have been in spite of, not because of logistics. The failures in Vietnam, Afghanistan, etc. were for other reasons. Strategic, political, tactical, cultural, you name it. See, you can lose a war with good logistics. Just ask Xerxes. Uh, just ask any general in Vietnam or Afghanistan. But it is much harder to win a war with bad logistics. Just ask Hitler. Or, hey Vladimir, how's it going over there? Okay, brief digression. I know we're running out of time. <laughs> I won't dive too deep into modern Russian logistics at this point in time, but now that we know what we know, cliff notes. Modern Russian logistics are heavily dependent on their railroads. Their combat units have much smaller logistical support units than their American equivalents. Where American battalions each have a dedicated support company, the Russian battalions only have a support platoon. So they have a much lower logistic capacity in their units. This level of transport is only enough to support a unit 90 miles from its railhead. If you look at a map of the initial Russian invasion of Ukraine in February 22, see how many of those red arrows went past that 90 mile limit from the railheads. Pretty much none. None that lasted very long at any rate, because if they outran that 90 mile limit, they got cut off and destroyed. Russia can't operate more than 90 miles from their railheads. Distance. Like Hitler, Russia built its logistics plans based on the assumption their enemy would collapse. And when that didn't happen, the Russians ran out of time before Western weapons arrived on that magnificent American logistics system. Russia couldn't go off the hardball highways during the muddy season. And you've seen all those videos, they got stuck conditions. And of course, the enemy always gets a vote because Ukrainian militia units, the Territorial Defense Force, focused their attacks and ambushes on the Russian supply train while regular army troops halted the advance elsewhere. The Russians ran into the Xerxes trap. Their army was too large to sustain, but too small to win. Small armies get beaten, big armies starve. The result was the defeat of the initial Russian offensive. Even though the war in Ukraine is still too early to call as of this recording, the Iron Hand of Logistics is alive and well in the year of our Lord 2022. United States military logistics reigns supreme. For now. Think of something like Red Dawn or Call of Duty games that depict a foreign enemy invading America. Interesting plot device, as of now utterly impossible. 
There is only one nation on Earth to this day that can project power like that, and it's not Russia or China. Despite their nukes and their recruitment videos and their parades, until they can overcome the iron hand of logistics, they will remain regional powers. Strong regional powers, but limited nonetheless. It seems so simple, just move an army over there. But it only seems simple because the United States has been making it look easy for about 80 years. It's simple, but it's not easy. The simple things are very difficult. And few things are more difficult than overcoming the Iron Hand of Logistics. So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? So that's, yeah, I, I think I'm done with this subject. I'm not going to do another logistics episode. From now on, when I say that someone could or couldn't do something because of the iron hand of logistics and I give an example, I figure y'all will probably understand exactly what I mean. I hope I made this very complicated subject a little easier to understand. You can probably tell by now I'm fascinated by this, but it just features so little in so many popular military history accounts that I felt that I just wanted to hammer the issue home, get this off my chest. And we learn a lot, not just about military history from the story of logistics, but about human history. How technology has driven the development of institutions, systems, governments. How handling complex supply chains has transformed what governments and institutions do, and how they wield that power. How resources and manpower alone are not enough to make any historical outcome inevitable. How creative solutions, engineering, organization often matter more than sheer weight of numbers or resources. How it takes thousands to millions of people, many of them anonymous, working behind the scenes to make things happen. As we've seen, the march of technology and modernization only changes the limits under which military forces operate. They do not destroy them altogether. As the military gets more complicated, more modern, more sophisticated, its logistic burden increases exponentially. From Xerxes to Putin, soldiers have needed to eat, but now they also need heavy caliber ammunition, fuel, spare parts, heavy equipment, you name it. Logistics is one of those things that it remains a rule throughout time. No matter how much of a god-king you are, how brilliant your generals are, how dangerous your soldiers are, or how powerful your economy is, there are limits. There are bottlenecks. There are constraints on what human beings can do, even with technology that would have seemed godlike, to our ancestors. In fact, I think understanding our limitations, understanding that we are only human, flesh and blood after all, that's the necessary prerequisite. The leaders who failed in this story, men like Xerxes, Napoleon, Jefferson Davis, Adolf Hitler, Vladimir Putin, are all men who believed that limits did not apply to them or their cause, but are logistics victors, men like Sherman and Eisenhower, the Greeks and the Ukrainians. They recognized the limits, and they won by manipulating the limits to their advantage. The difference between relying on an easy dream and grappling with a hard reality. As unsexy and as boring and as dreary as they seem, logistics are the reality of war. They always have been and they always will be. Amateurs study tactics. Professionals study logistics. No one, not even a god-king or a fuhrer or a modern czar, is too mighty to be brought low by its iron hand. 
Thanks so much for listening to this Unknown Soldiers podcast special edition. I hope I didn't put you to sleep. If you've liked what you've heard today, tell your friends about it or send it to some important management or leadership speaker, and maybe he'll tweet it and I'll get a few listens. I don't know, knock yourself out. If you don't like what you've heard, tell your enemies, but don't forget they always get a vote. If you want my sources, they are on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com, and there is also a link to those sources in the description of this article, of this episode. If you want to contribute to my book fund, I have a donate button on my website. I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod, or just drop me a line at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I will respond. And finally, guys, I'm on my way back. Season two is on its way. See you on September 5th for the return to the Graveyard of Empires. Only here, as always, on Unknown Soldiers. (laughs) 